Hello, it's the Campaign Podcast, your weekly-ish dose of news and insights on the big advertising, media and marketing stories of the week. I'm your host today, Omar Oaks. Hello, everyone. I've wrestled the microphone back from Gurdjit Deegan, who was disturbingly charming and poised with hosting the previous episode. Later in the show, I'll be sitting down with Isbar, the trade body for 3,000 plus brands in the UK, and PwC to talk about their first-of-a-kind landmark eye-opening study into the mess that is the digital advertising industry. But first, to help me make sense of what's going on right now and plow through these coronavirus times and the big stories, it's Campaign's Consulting Editor, Jeremy Lee. Jeremy, how are you today? Hi, Omar. I'm very well. Thank you very much for asking. Good. Raring to go. Glad to hear it. Um, you were Didn't say that. Few... <laughs> uh, you sound like it, though. Um, you, you, you had a few days off, lucky you, last week, but you're back at it this week. What have you been up to? Uh, yeah, so last week I was mostly um, staying at home. This week I'm, I'm staying alert, as per yes. my instructions. Good, staying at home, saving lives, and now um, just staying alert and doing something which is um, fairly incomprehensible by the sounds of it. Um, did you did you watch Mr. Johnson's speech on Sunday night? What did you make of the messaging? Yeah, I did. Um, I yeah, I mean, I I didn't understand a lot of the outcry. I did understand some of it, and I I thought the thing about you know the fact that Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are doing it differently. I thought, well, that's reasonable. There, we've got devolved government there in healthcare. That's fine. I understood some of the confusion because the detail didn't really come into effect. In fact, some of it doesn't come into effect at the moment about how it's actually going to work. But um, I think the fact that stay alert is a bit more of a passive message than stay at home, and it's not quite scary, uh, has made people feel a little bit like a little bit more confused. But I understand that you know, stay at home. It was scaring the shit out of everyone, as, as a Tory MP said. So I think there needed to be a little bit more uh, of a relaxation. What did you think of it? I think it's quite difficult to judge. Firstly, because, you know, we had these awful newspaper headlines from, was it last Thursday, where everything had been briefed to the newspapers clearly about what the messaging was going to be. And because, as you say, it's not instantly understandable, comprehensible in terms of what the messaging is, then you're thinking, oh, what's this? So then when we get to this Boris Johnson speech on Sunday, he doesn't really add a lot more detail to it. And so it seems that was the opportunity for him to really clarify these things. You might ask, why was he briefing newspapers in the first place? But I I think whether whether you agree with the government strategy, I think the messaging has been questionable. Um, We've been asking Adlanders what they think about it. piece we were speaking today on Wednesday morning and a piece from yesterday afternoon by Gurdjieff talk to some people in the advertising industry who generally I guess I think it's fair to say were also a bit nonplussed by the government messaging um Bridget Angia joint chief strategy officer of AMV BBDO among one of many people to say huh that's clear then she says I have to say I find myself siding with Scotland's first minister minister Nicola Sturgeon when she describes it as vague and imprecise uh, Bridget says the next phase of how we deal with this horrendous virus may be well more complex. Is that actually the issue, Jeremy? Is that because this is quite a complicated situation where the government may be not quite sure about how much we can ease these lockdown res- restrictions? Isn't it the fact that it is quite a nuanced message that it has to deliver? And that doesn't necessarily lend itself well to newspaper headlines and outdoor campaigns. Newspaper, what do you think? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it varies by which sector you work in. As Johnson said, you know, 
he wants certain sectors to go back to work first, sort of manufacturing and the like, um, whereas the rest of us, if we can work at home, stay at home. So there isn't a universal message like, stay at home, which worked for everyone. This has to be a bit more flexible, which, you know, by definition is going to be more vague. I think Bridget makes a very good point that, you know, it's, it's the beginning of the next stage of how the government deals with it. So what follows next will perhaps hopefully provide clarity to what be alert means. Um, I thought it was interesting also in that, that piece that Gurdjieff wrote, um, uh, uh, David Golding um, pointed out that um, both Philip and Holly from uh, this morning hated it as well. So we really should be taking these matters very, very seriously. Um, there was a, there was a, I remember when um, the coronavirus lockdown first happened and the week before that, Boris Johnson appeared on Philip and the Philip and Holly show this morning and <laughs> did you, you you have to look it up if you haven't seen it you did come straight in here and i kept my hands by my side just to see what happened and uh, and you walked in and you shook my hand very i did i did i did like and i got uh, that's right and, and I, then they actually filmed it and they played back the clip of boris johnson bounding into the studio and grabbing um philip schofield's hand and you know this this is at a time this is well into March when this happened, and he was still boasting about um, shaking everybody's hand in a hospital where they had coronavirus. He was the prime minister who should know best, but I was thinking back of some of my behaviour. So back in early March, I was hugging my mates in the pub, and you know doing like things you wouldn't dream of doing that anymore. Which was shaking hands with people at work I didn't know. It just seems a you know a very very different kind of tactile world away that. We may never see again, but yeah, you're right. Boris shouldn't be doing that. Well, how how strange is it going to feel whenever the time comes we we can actually shake each other's hands again? It's um... I, I might hug you, Omar. I, I might. I, I'm just saying that. Well, um, I, I look forward to it, of course. Um, <laughs> um, and you wrote an interesting feature before um, you decided to go on, off on holiday. Um, you actually looked at it's quite forward thinking in terms of what agencies are looking to do as they return to the workplace. Um, what were the main findings of what came out of that? Well, firstly, thank you very much. Forward thinking is my um, my middle name. Um, the phone, double, I, a double-barreled I, middle name. Double-barreled, double-barreled middle name. Yeah, I'm very posh. Um, I, um, I thought that it was quite interesting. There was no uh, – it was still very early, so the government um, recommendations hadn't been released. But I thought it was interesting that there was a sort of consensus that – uh, maybe advertising agencies aren't best uh, prepared to go back to work yet, and, and perhaps nor should they, because you know, as far as the the supply chain and manufacturing and advertising's place in actually producing stuff is uh, is probably on the periphery. It's you know, it's uh, obviously still very important economically, but these jobs can be done as has been shown largely from home, maybe not perfectly. Um, but they can be done, and I think there's a lot of uh, agencies that aren't set up for for social distancing. They're they're all about collaborative spaces and you know maximising floor space. And there's going to have to be a lot of work done. That's going to take quite a lot of time to make sure that these you know big smoke, glass, and steel buildings are actually going to be suitable for um, for people to work safely. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting. Um, obviously, in terms of practically how things are going to develop but also culturally i i wonder how it's going to develop and you know is everyone saying oh that you know things will never be the same we're going to have lots of people working from home whenever they want we've done it now we've seen that it's okay but on the other hand i personally really miss the office 
so we can hug each other, Jeremy, if nothing else. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, and I particularly think about some of our younger colleagues where we work in, um, you know, the ad industry still employs a lot of young people. You know, when I was 10 years younger, for example, I wanted to go to the office to kind of socialize and kind of have more bands with people. You know, I was, I was living in a smaller flat at the time, you know, it, it's, it, it might be okay for people who are maybe earning six-figure salaries at the top end of this industry to be working from home for their nice houses. Um, but I really do wonder about um, younger people, how they're going to cope. Well, that's a fair point. I, I, I miss the um, you know the congeniality of working with other people. It's, I, I only live in a small flat, like probably like the one you had when you were 10 years ago. But um, So you do miss having sharing the same living and working space in a small place is quite difficult. And I should imagine for younger people who may be and the early steps on the on the housing ladder or sharing still it's going to be quite difficult and I think you know as you say we've discussed before is that you do get ideas from other people and it's that happens from in a working environment particularly in ad agencies you know they they are all about collaboration aren't they and I'm sure teams and all the other things are, are fine but I think creatively creative teams are teams and they probably we've published a couple of pieces from creative teams about how they they miss working together I think that probably applies to a lot of people in the creative industries yeah. And um, interesting to see news overnight from Twitter, who have said that their employees can essentially work from home forever from now on. Um, they've got about 5,000 people around the world, obviously headquartered in San Francisco. They have an office in London and Air Street. Um, just off Regent Street. Um, and they've said that Jack Dorsey, the founder and CEO, has said that they can work from home indefinitely, even after we recover from the coronavirus. And Facebook and Google say that their working from home policies are extending into 2021, Amazon into October. And so these are very capital driven industries where people can essentially work from a laptop anywhere and everyone's gotten used to talking on zoom it's interesting to see how this spectrum is emerging with those sorts of companies where essentially they might have very flexible work flexible office arrangements where it might only be young people for example who want to go to the office and it could be significant amounts of people in our industry in the future who just never go to an office again I think it's interesting. Those those examples you don't see. I mean, they are they are slightly different. Well, they're vastly different from advertising agencies, as you. They're tech companies for first and foremost. So you don't see a huge amount of creative output coming out, coming from them. Whereas uh, you know, if you look at all the big agencies, that's what their their raison d'etre is. Mm. And one of those big hubs of ad agencies in London is in Southbank, which is Omnicom's headquarters in London. And there they last week they decided to merge proximity and wrap, which is going to be a big customer experience and engagement agency. Um in the UK, those agencies are led by Chris Freeland, who is Rap CEO. He's becoming executive chairman. And Gabby Luzger of Proximity, who's going to remain as CEO of RAP. Um, so the Proximity name is going. Um, Jeremy, what do you think about that? Is this a sign of more agency mergers to come, or is this something specific to these two Omnicom companies? Oh, well, first thing, I'm an old romantic, and I'm 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 sad to see the the Proximity brand go. It's <clears throat> it's one of those agencies that won uh, campaigns um, DM and then CRM agency of the year a number of times in the past. And it was always a very distinctive and very creative shop. So it's a, you know, a little, little pang of regret there as it disappears. Uh, the two agencies, RAP and Proximity, they're, they're, they're significantly different. It's something the heritage is. I think Proximity rebranded last year as, 
under the, the the banner connected creativity and rap is standing up for individuality and I don't know whether they're going to come connected individuality or standing up for creativity. I don't know, but they seem to be sort of slightly diametrically opposed. Rap was always the biggest sort of data data shop, uh, whereas Proxima, as I say, was the more creative one. Um, I think it may, as you say, there's been a number of instances of agencies merging, most of them born by necessity, such as the disappearance of Lido and Tremon C. Saatchi. Um, I think in this example, it's a rational move. Uh, they're both solid strong agencies. I think they both got, uh, I think Proximity got six last year in the school report. Rap got seven. Uh, Proximity lost Lloyd. So it had a bit of, a bit of account loss. It lost to 17% of staff. So yeah, you know, it wasn't on its uppers, but I think a bit of consolidation given the whole marketplace was probably on the cards anyway. And creating, you know, Rap's always had the stronger global footprint. So it sort of, it sort of makes sense, but I do, do think that, uh, you know, we should give Proximity, uh, this, well, I hope, the industry gives proximity the, the send-off it deserves, or Omnicom gives it, if you know what I mean. That doesn't make sense because they can't have a party. But anyway, we should regret the passing of proximity, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Indeed. And so overall, what do you think? Defensive move in terms of consolidation, or is there something else going on? Uh, probably slightly defensive move because there's obviously going to be cost-cutting. I think the, the, the headcount is going to go down a little bit. I think there's about... Just over 520 staff in total currently. I think it's going to they claimed down to 500, so not massive cut in resources. Uh, but back office will be a lot, and I think it just makes sort of it's it's a brand it's a brand rationalisation product as well as a bit of cost cutting. I'd have thought, but certainly not on the scale of the disappearance of um, of leader or, or or the merger of Wonderman and JWT. Nothing as dramatic as that. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I suspect there will be further moves throughout the rest of the year as you know this coronavirus pandemic is not going away anytime soon. Okay, Jeremy, um, I'm going to go into this interview I've done about the programmatic mess that has been uncovered by this report by Isburn PwC. Um, when we come back, we're going to look at some ads. So stay tuned for that. Joining me today, we have two people who have been very busy over the last few days explaining the findings of their remarkable reports into the digital advertising industry. We have Stephen Chester, Director of Media at ISBAR, the UK trade body for 3,000-odd advertisers who commissioned the study, and Sam Tomlinson, partner at PwC that led the team carrying out said study. Um, but first of all, Sam, um, what do we actually mean by programmatic advertising here? So, so, so what we were looking at here is um, what I'm going to call classic programmatic. So this is the, the automated buying of, of digital ad, uh, ad inventory um, for, on the internet, um, excluding the walled gardens such as Google and Facebook. So, so this is classic display or video advertising, as would appear on a regular news website, for example. Uh, sorry, and, and a bit of context, that's, a, that's about a £2 billion of spend in the UK annually. And, um, and just briefly, what kind of ads are they and how are they bought? Are they bought by media agencies? Are they bought by brands directly? How does it work? Um, the majority would be bought by, by media agencies um, running campaigns on behalf of, of brands. Um, uh, a, a small handful of advertisers have fully in-housed their digital advertising, so would have an in-house team buying display or video ads programmatically. Um, but, but the majority uh, use agencies. In this study, 
um, at the time of the study, um, all, all 15 of those brands were, were using agencies. Uh, one has subsequently switched to an in-house model, not as a result of this study, a, a, a change that was already happening. Mm. Okay, let's um, go through the top top lines of your finding. Um, some of these um, stats are remarkable. So we've got 51% of the money that, go, that advertisers buy programmatically goes to the publishers on whose sites the ads are sold. So only half of the money actually goes towards where they're supposed to go. Um, so that remaining 49%, the report says, nearly a third of this money simply can't be accounted for. Um, so, Stephen, what's going on here? But I think the costs that we found in the supply chain um, are about on par with what other studies have discovered as well. So there were no surprises um, on the agency fee, DSP fee, technology fees um, that apply through the supply chain. But what has been a surprise is the 15% uh, that PwC were not able to attribute to any one of those parties um, or any further parties in the supply chain. And that's the, that, that is a surprise. Um, I think the, our senses from this, um, and Sam will be able to elaborate in a bit more detail, is that because of the quality and fidelity of the data on each side of the fence. So to be clear, you have the buy-side data from advertisers and sell-side data from the publishers from their DSPs and SSPs respectively. But there, is, there isn't completely like-for-like data on every single impression, line-by-line -line data. What we found is that the, the data, there's a mismatch in terms of the taxonomies used, um, in terms of that level of detail, um, of granularity that's available on both sides. And our sense is that the industry um, needs to have that complete like-for-like -like data and that much of this unknown data may well be identified once we have that. But without that, um, it makes it very challenging to identify what the unknown data is really. First, I, I echo what Steve's just said there, that the, the biggest finding for, for, from this whole study, for me, is, is the nine months it took to secure data access and the inconsistent formatting of that data once we had it. And, and, and the overriding next step has to be um, industry-wide alignment on protocols for data access and data formatting because it's only once you have that in place that you can investigate the unknown delta in, in a truly meaningful way. Um, what the unknown delta represents is in the data sets that we saw for, for the 31 million impressions that we could match, um, there are sometimes discrepancies between the, the, the data that that's, um, leaves the DSP and the data en entering the, the SSP um, we've talked in the report or speculated about what some of those causes could be. That speculation is based on um, our experience in the industry. Uh, in particular, one of our teams spent 10 years working within programmatic. Um, and obviously, we've spoken to, to, to various people as well. Um, and what are those um, causes? Are we talking about fraud? Um, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I think what we're talking about here is there's certainly weaknesses in the data, as we've already alluded to. Um, there is certainly some element of foreign exchange because of the fact that you have programmatic operates fundamentally in US dollars. So you have to translate from sterling to dollars and, and back again. Um, there, if there are other fees that we weren't aware of being applied by either by DSPs or SSPs that we weren't aware of in the data, that would be driving the delta. Um, there could also be things like trading arrangements between uh, tech vendors and other parts of the supply chain. Clearly, this you know, any supply chain um, should be auditable. Um, and the fact that it's taken so many months, I know there's been lots of speculation over the last few days since we've actually released the study 
um, in terms of you know what the unknowns also might be, or the or people commenting on the challenges that we've encompassed from from different elements of the, of the supply chain. But very simply, you know, it, we believe this is just built on complexity, and it's about unraveling that complexity. But I would say that it's not sustainable to have a supply chain that is almost inaudible as it stands at the moment, and having a I said a, a world class auditor go in. Essentially, to try and answer that sort of straightforward question about who's in my supply chain, and what, how much they cost, and what value, therefore, allowing each brand and therefore publishers to derive the value of their partners. Um, to be almost unable to do that and have this unattributable figure is the most is one of the most challenging elements. So that, but it's be, because it's been built on this complexity, it needs to be unravelled. But it is not sustainable. Um, looking at the publishers and the ad agencies, the media agencies that took part in this study, um, you very much looked at the premium end of the programmatic market. So we're talking about leading publishers, leading media agencies, well-known ad tech companies. So I guess my question is, Sam, if this is the highest quality end of the market, what does the rest of the market look like? So, so you're absolutely right to, to know that this is the premium end. This is the most prestigious advertisers, um, you know, premium publishers, uh, you know, strong respected agencies and the best known tech vendors um, and even within that world as you say we we could only match 12 percent of the impressions served from those advertisers to those to those publishers um, we've always been careful to say that we have we we would not claim that what we've done is representative of programmatic as a whole you know what we've done is representative of this most premium end of the premium part of programmatic um, we don't have data to indicate what is likely to be happening in, in longer tail programmatic. Um, yeah, our, our best guess would be that it's likely that the proportion of spend reaching publishers falls the more further you go into the long tail, but, um, but we don't know. And you know, that, that, that's an exercise for the future, I guess. One of the brands that took part in this was um, BT, one of 15 advertisers that took part in the study. Um, their head of media, Graham Adams, said, while digital display is an effective sales drive for us, the findings of the study are stark. There is a big hole in the value chain. He says, we desperately need to see a common set of standards adopted and more openness in this market so that every penny spent is accounted for. And he warns, if this doesn't happen, they're going to cut back and reshape their trading approaches. Um, so let's go into some of the recommendations from this report, Stephen. What you represent nearly 3,000, more than 3,000 advertisers in the UK what should these brands be doing now? Well, I think it's the, the, there are two critical conclusions and recommendations from the report. Um, so one is, this, and this is required more broadly, um, there are actions that brands and publishers can obviously take from the, from the study, which we can touch on later on, the specific um, recommendations in terms of optimization. But in terms of actually then fundamentally changing um, the, you know, the, to be able to change the um, ability to kind of get to that data. And once you get to that data, uh, the quality of it to actually allow um, attribution, allow auditing, it requires a much more, a much, a much broader industry approach. So the two critical conclusions are standardization um, across both operational and contractual access to the data, regardless of if it's a DSP or SSP, um, and standardization around the way that data is shared and its transparency. Um, so specifically, the, it took up to 
nine months to actually get hold of the data for this study because of the legalities and legal contracts between each party and the supply chain, which were often unique or very specific to those parties. There are no master terms conditions, much like there were years ago. Uh, certainly, and I think that I believe that some agency publisher contracts still reference the IAB master terms conditions, which were developed back in 2010. There are no master terms conditions which dictate access and legal access to data. Um, and also, once you get to there, the data, the data and how it's presented, so the taxonomy for the data, um, the fidelity of that data, having access to the log-level granular data, impression by impression, line by line. So we need to standardise the legal access to that data and the way that that data is presented on both sides of the fence. And then once we have that, at least the second critical conclusion, it allows us to then investigate and collaborate as an industry to actually look at the um, the unknown delta and actually delve into more detail as to why that occurs. But it is our sense that once we have that like-for-like data, um, that much of the unattributable uh, cost, that unknown delta, will be identifiable. But we won't know until we can actually standardise um, you know, access to and the appearance of that data on both sides of the fence. Sam, if you're a publisher reading this report and you know, having confirmed data about how much money is being wasted, what should you be doing? If I'm a publisher, then I personally would choose to work with a smaller number of SSPs, um, which I could manage more closely. So, and I would ensure that those contracts are updated regularly, ideally annually, but if not, certainly every other year. I'd be um, monitoring closely at a log level, the volumes and the revenues coming through from each of my SSPs. Um, and, And I would exercise my right of audit over those SSPs uh, every couple of years. Um, the the uh, you know, programmatic done well is a good thing. The ability to target audiences is, is a benefit for, for both advertisers as and publishers. Um, it just means that you need to take full responsibility for, for your part of the supply chain. And I think to add to that, I think it's not, we're not saying is that this is wasted money. Clearly there are you know, parts in the supply chain which offer value and each of them clearly have to come with a cost because of the service they deliver. The question is, both for publishers and advertisers, is knowing who's in your supply chain and how much they cost, are they delivering incremental value? So very simply put, by using them, are you improving the quality and the performance of your media as an advertiser or improving the quality or improving the yield um, as a publisher? If you're the, the financial director of a big FMCG company, for example, and whoever's running your online media budget tells you that half of the money that you're spending on these ads is taken off by fees and you know 15% of it you don't you're not even sure where it's going what why would you keep accepting that situation so, so i do think if i was the um the, let's say if i was the cfo of one of the, the 15 brands that had taken part i would be actively thanking my marketing team for for stepping forward in this area um the the, the 15 brands and the 12 publishers who uh, and indeed, the, the eight agencies that took part in this have, have I think, done the industry a real service um, and, and definitely need to be thanked for that. Um, in, in terms of how, how the money is spent, ultimately, this is about return on investment. So if your programmatic campaigns are working for you and yielding you know, strong, measurable benefit, then clearly that, that is money that's been well spent. And if you can further improve that by you know, identifying and, and driving down this delta for the benefits of advertisers and publishers, then clearly, clearly that's a good thing. Um, but we actually, we certainly wouldn't want the conclusion of this study to be to imply that people should 
withdraw from programmatic. We are pro-programmatic, but we are pro-programmatic done well. Yeah, I would concur with that. You know, as sensible analysis has showed with you know with, with very finely tweaked attribution models and econometric models, it's shown that you know the digital advertising works very well for brands. And Sam said this is about you know can it work better for them and also the publishers as well. Um, you know, we we believe that the companies clearly should be fairly remunerated for the for the services they offer. Um, but everybody has to demonstrate the value that they offer. Um, and it's and uh, it's concur with Sam, you know, I applaud the, the advertisers and publishers who've commissioned this study. Um, what is the first end-to-end study and be able to look at this from a sort of macro point of view of following the money through the supply chain? It works, so how can we actually make it work more effectively by actually understanding the supply chain and actually driving efficiency? In any other supply chain, you would expect the same thing as well. People would be able to examine who's in my supply chain and optimise who is in that supply chain to deliver the best possible value, whether you're an advertiser or a publisher. Mm. And Sam, if you were to do another study of this kind in a couple of years' time, let's say, and you were hoping that the the data collection was a lot easier because there were, there were more standards, more common standards that DSPs and SSPs adhered to, what would what would two or three things need to happen, do you think? We, we need that alignment on, on, on data access and data formatting. If, um, if we can get that in place, then, then, then actually the, the impression matching and the data analysis would, you know, would, would be much easier. Um, uh, the, having been through this once, you know, or, or clearly even repeating it again would be simpler because we've, we've had to work our way through some of the problems the first time round, but, um, Ultimately, we need a situation as the supply chain should act in the benefit for the benefit of both advertisers and publishers. Um, if the ultimate buyers and sellers want to share their data, that should be able to happen intuitively within a day or two. It shouldn't it shouldn't take nine months. And that's what we need to unpick. To summarize, we you know we we're looking at disclosed media here. So this is where you know, parties should be known, you know, known in the supply chain. And this is the disclose end of the market. So if this is where we are disclosed, then non-disclosed again would be, far, would be even more challenging, of course. Um, and I want to make it clear that we're, this is not, the whole point about bringing this study was not to bring, uh, was not to point fingers, um, was not to single out anyone for blame. It was simply to give much more clarity and transparency about the markets and try and actually understand where it can be improved. Um, and the market simply evolved in a disorganized way. It lacks standards and protocols of transparency. And we, we've, we've developed other protocols. So as a, by comparison, the transparency and consent framework about passing consent. So there's no reason why we cannot do this. You know, for um, for you know, for programmatic supply chain transparency, and actually have common protocols and standards, which we've discussed in, in this podcast, and which are outlined in the report. Um, and as a final point, I think that some people have commentated that, that the way that companies work together in the supply chain often are unique, and that if you were going to do a follow the money study, you would have to then bend to the way that the market works. I would suggest the market needs to then evolve, and actually standardise. So that if somebody wants to then repeat this audit or do a similar audit, they don't have to bend and essentially change their methodology um, repeatedly, depending on who's in the supply chain. The supply chain itself should have standard protocols and standards to make it easy to audit. 
And um, finally, Sam, um, what's the reaction been? Um, this re- we're recording on Tuesday. Uh, this report came out Wednesday last week. Uh, what's been the general reaction? It certainly generated a lot of coverage. Um, I, the, the majority of the coverage that, that I've seen um, has been uh, very positive about the fact that the study was, was done, um, has been interested in, in the findings. Um, I, I, think, I think the coverage often skews towards the, um, the, the unknown delta and the proportion of, of, of money reaching publishers, whereas you know, my personal view is that the deepest, most interesting story here is, is just the nine months it took to get the data in the first place. Um, it's the data access and the data formatting. Um, as I've said before, f- fix that, uh, and then the supply chain becomes less opaque, it becomes more auditable, and a lot of other things will, will, will fall into place afterwards. Perhaps for cynics and maybe some of the listeners who perhaps are cynics are saying, well, the industry, you know, there's, there's been reports, um, perhaps not end-to-end like this, but similar reports, and the, perhaps the industry has acted or not acted, um, depending on which end and where you are in that supply chain. I would say that there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny in this space. There are a lot of themes called out in the Cancross review. Um, the Competition Markets Authority is currently reviewing uh, this market and is due to complete that uh, review by the end of, uh, I think, by the end of uh, by the end of June. Um, and DCMS uh, and others have also um, shown interest clearly in this, you know, in this market as well. And I think if we are not minded to create change um, and to follow up on the recommendations in the report the maybe further regulatory scrutiny and perhaps oversight in the future so i think it's in everybody's interests to sort of get behind the findings from the study and actually come together to address the findings and to that end um, we've launched a, a task force uh, with the aapr partners in the study but also we can with the iab and the ipa and we're due to meet um, in the next two weeks to actually sit down, go through the findings of the reports in a bit more detail, and then launch those task forces and work streams addressing those two key areas of standardisation of access to and the um, appearance of that data, and then secondly, to dig into that unknown delta. So I think there is motivation for the industry to actually get on and actually address those two key points because of that regulatory scrutiny. Yes, um, important issues um, that we're going to keep discussing in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Um, But for now, thank you very much, Stephen Chester from ISBAR and Sam Tomlinson from PwC. Thank you very much. So, Jeremy Lee, we are back. Now, let's talk about some advertising. Now, there's been a lot of talk on social media by some very clever people in the last couple of weeks that all coronavirus advertising seems the same before we get into some of the ads we want to talk about what do you think about that i think that's it's um a rather a rather petty gripe it's an observation that may be true to a certain extent but i don't think they appreciate the limitations of the port well perhaps they do appreciate the limitations of what people work with i think it seems like a bit of, bit of cheap point scoring I think, given the circumstances, I think agencies have, uh, you know, they they've done a remarkably good job in a remarkably short amount of time, getting good creative, good creative work. I say good, you know, creative work that does the job out there. I mean, it may not win any awards for for craft, but I think some of the scripts, some of the um, some of the film work, just, you know, given that they've been done remotely, has been has been nothing short of remarkable. Yes, they may be a little bit more, because I don't know what people expect. Uh, in a time when you know 
30 or thousand people have died or they I don't know I, I, I'm slightly baffled by the criticism I think as you say it's really difficult I was taught when when this first when we first went into lockdown I was speaking to Orlando Wood um the the guy who wrote um the lemon um work for the for the effectiveness work and you know he was saying that what brands shouldn't do right now is kind of adopt kind of you know follow the herd mentality and don't underestimate the capacity for people to be able to understand that this messaging is being may have been created in a pre-lockdown period but also people might want some escapism so there's a question over whether you should be um kind of really leaning in hard to doing all this you know virtuous messaging um but you know aside that I think there are some good examples of brands who are getting it right. I mean, last week I wrote um, a pick of the week, the campaign. I thought the British gas ad that they did, that they have running right now, is um, really quite good. Hello, you through to British Gas. How can I help? And it was fun. It was kind of frivolous, but it also shows the value of what these people do. And actually, it's quite difficult what they're doing in these circumstances. Um, so I, I thought that was well done. Um, but you really like the Just Eat ad that's come out. <laughs> I don't like it as much as um, as our editor in chief, who's apparently uh, one of the world's biggest uh, Snoop Dogg fans. Um, but yeah, I thought that um, the timing is interesting. You're right that the previous ads that we've had certainly that were made during lockdown have displayed utility and there's nothing wrong with that but this one is it's um it was delayed because of uh, lockdown it was obviously made before there but it's it's big and it's justy and it's funny and it's snoop dog playing on somebody say just me get delivery like a gc Hungry dogs gotta eat. I get mines every day, every week. Chicken wings to the crib. I'm sitting in burger in the low You know, we've had, a, we've had a lot of one time uh, on You know, I say ads that are practical rather than inspiring. This one may not be inspiring, but it's, it's something fun and it stands out. And um, Snoop Dogg's got a great track record of of, um, of working on ads, and I think he sort of excels himself and also he's two months older than me so i'm i'm even happier that a man who's nearly 50 is still getting airtime well um you're you're only marginally less famous than he is so i wouldn't worry too much (laughs) um he of course (laughs) this spot was created by mccann london just eats ad agency and um it's showing snoop as he as he whacked a lyrical about the Just Eat jingle, which prompts him to get in touch with the brand and create his own version. And uh, it's actually quite a similar idea that um, Ed Sheeran apparently had. Do you remember the ketchup ad that Ed Sheeran did about a year ago when he's sitting in that restaurant? I've got an idea for a Heinz ketchup commercial. I was at this super posh restaurant. Super posh. Um, which seems to be the world's worst restaurant where people are treating Ed Sheeran rather poorly. Um, so it's not a completely new idea, um, but, you know, it's a celebrity. It's standing out because there aren't many ads like this right now. It just works, doesn't it? Oh, totally. And I think, you know, Snoop is, sort of takes the piss out of himself in it as well. Uh, I'm just thinking, it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's good to see. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Durex, um, which, um, you know, we talk about how you do this messaging in the coronavirus time. Um, their work was quite interesting. These posters, they said, where they're actually saying, let's not go back to normal. Um, and they're making the point where, you know, we shouldn't go back to so-called normal things such as shaming women who carry condoms. 
uh, men not wearing them because they don't like the feel. Um, it's part of a campaign. We had um, strategist at Habas, the agency that created this work on recently on the podcast, Chantel, um, Chantel Begley. And it, it's, it, it's just quite good because it's going against the grain. Um, do you think, Jeremy, it's that's going to be what we see going forward is companies trying to kind of go against the grain in terms of what's come before with this messaging? Potentially, yeah. And I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Jirox is, is, um, is a great example of a, of a brand that's done consistently good advertising for, I don't know, the last two years from Havas, um, Havas London. And this is just another example of them. You know, they are leaking themselves to, to lockdown, but in a very intelligent and responsible way and with a, an important message. And I think just think, you know, it's it's another great example of, of brilliant work from them. But uh, in terms of what future creativity looks like, and that's an interesting point. I, Brittany, um, our colleague, wrote a, uh, a feature talking about uh, young creatives and what they're learning now. And one of the things that came out of it was that well, colleges they're teaching or they're giving them briefs about funny, you know, things are tough at the moment let's, let's try and be funny so i think whether there's a whether that whether funny comes back in a post covid19 world that will be interesting to see so that's something i'm i'm looking at at the moment working on um i think that perhaps we earnest this might disappear we may see more fun such as just eat but uh, i think it might be an opportunity for brands to, to to reset and to look at their um you know their brand purpose ideas whether they actually ring true because i think people are, are going to look at them with a certain cynicism and say what are you, what have you actually done that's good what are you going to do that's good and entertain us i think it's just, it really is a sign of the times i remember watching ads in the 90s and remembering all these funny ads you remember tango and r whites i'm a secret lemonade drinker it wasn't just soft drink brands but just like you know just just ads that were just funny that was it they just wanted to make you laugh and that was how they stood out and there was a lot of good comedy around at the time and you just don't see that nowadays and and part of it is cultural i remember being at Cannes last year and talking to the winners of the young lions awards and these you know all people that were just coming out of um, advertising school most of them and it was all really purposeful stuff like even more than what you see actually um on your ad reel nowadays and i asked a couple of them don't you want to kind of work for Nike, for example, and like create, you know, some of the cool stuff that they've done over the years? And the response was just flat no. You know, I remember this um, this one young man from Brazil, he said, you know, we've got so many problems in our country and there's so many problems around the world right now. You know, advertising, this is this is our chance to fix things, to do some good in the world. It is quite interesting. They're all, you know, Ken last year was all about climate change and, you know, disposable plastic, all that kind of stuff. I think we're probably going to see that message disappear a little bit because the most pressing um, thing for most countries in the past month, two months, has been getting hold of disposable plastic PPE. I think there was that statistic that the government got through a billion or delivered a billion pieces of PPE in a month. And that stuff isn't going to rot away. So, you know, irrespective of what plastic you use in a a deodorant can or... Do you know what I mean? I think that stuff now looks a little bit silly and irrelevant and a bit of an advertising fetish rather than real world so i don't know whether they're going to see a reordering a reordering of the hierarchy of things but i don't think you know, rightly or wrongly climate change is going to be quite as high up the agenda given the um given what we've just gone through 
It's almost as if these issues are actually more complicated than most people would appreciate and require nuanced <laughs> solutions, going back to our coronavirus messaging discussion. Um, also, I have to mention one more ad I liked. Um, this is by Uncommon. These fun candles um, they did for Hospitality Action, a charity that's helping the hospitality industry. Um, they've, they've labeled these candles that have different scents. The cinema which reminds you of, you know, popcorn and um, spilt Coca-Cola on the carpet. I don't know. Um, the local... It was Ennui as well, wasn't it? They said Teenage Ennui was part of the cinema experience. <laughs> did, did teenagers go to the cinema? I don't know. Um, well, not anymore. You know, um, and, you know, I, I just thought that was quite a good idea. I don't know if there's any media spin behind it, but um, it's it's definitely a good idea to do. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else caught your eye, Jeremy? No, I think you've covered everything, Omar expertly that's what i do well okay then let's get out of here i'm afraid that is it for another episode thanks very much to jeremy and also to stephen chester from isbar and sam tomlinson from pwc thanks also to number eight studios for the help recording this episode remotely and to james Everett for producing it remember to subscribe if you haven't already and catch the latest ad industry news and biggest brands ad at campaign live .co.uk. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.